Welcome to the Lady Preacher Podcast, a podcast for the progressive Christian, where we talk about an all-loving God, an embodied Christ, and an ever-moving spirit. Dive right in as we wrestle with what it means to live out our faith in the world. Hi, my friend. Welcome. I am your host, Reverend Kelsey Beebe. And before we dive in today, I want to be sure to tell you about our Advent devotional called Praying Through Advent. It was co-written with my friend and colleague, Reverend Delaney Schlake-Cruz. And you can access that by going to dancingpastor.org. It's a PDF download. It includes reflections and prompts for you to do, questions to think about so that you can really center in your faith this Advent season. And again, just go to dancingpastor.org and you can find out more and download it there. Today, I am so excited to introduce you to my friend and colleague, Reverend Mahogany Thomas. Mahogany Thomas is a pastor in the United Church of Christ, and she serves as the executive minister of People's Congregational UCC in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Reverend Mahogany is a brilliant, brilliant pastor and theologian. She is a graduate of Yale Divinity School, where she received many, many awards. Uh, Her focus is homiletics, womanist theology, and practical theology. She has preached all over from San Francisco to Chicago to the Garden of Gethsemane while visiting Jerusalem. Today, we dove into some incredible conversation around a new love ethic, and I will let her explain that to you. We talk about sin and her word for It is the malpractice of theology around sin. And she helps us find a newer, better, healthier understanding of what sin is and helps us see and imagine a way forward for ourselves and our world. She gives us a true message of hope. And I know you will walk away inspired. Okay, my friends, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Reverend Mahogany Thomas. Good morning. Hello, Mahogany. How are you? I am good. Good morning. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. I'm so grateful. I'm glad to have you. Can you just start us off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what your ministry is? Absolutely. So my name is Mahogany Thomas. I often tell folks that I'm a small town girl from the middle of Missouri. And somehow, for some reason, I happen to be living in Washington, D.C. right now, um, which is where I am serving. I recently started a call June 1st as the executive minister at People's Congregational United Church of Christ. So I'm an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. I have privilege of call from a formerly Baptist uh, congregation. And I am just following where God is taking me in this moment. I'm a lover of God and God's people. And so anything that brings me joy to share the love of God is what I find myself doing. Mm, That's beautiful. I want to start with um, a new love ethic, which is a Bible study that you recently did. And 
And uh, the, the side title to that is defining sin as the absence of loving. And I know with this study, you use Jesus, Bell Hooks, Howard Thurman, and John Coltrane, all tied in to a study of James, which I think is so fascinating. So I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit more about this Bible study. What do all these people and things have in common? Um, and what inspired it? Yeah, that's great. So recently I was asked to fill in on this Bible study and we were focusing on James chapter one. And I was like, okay, God, what do you have for me to share in this moment? I'm deeply worried about the trauma that's happening right now. I think folks are hurting. And so I just was like, God, what can I share um, with your people? And so so what I really felt the spirit working with me on was about what it meant to be in good relationship with ourselves, with God and with others. And so I think the grounding piece that Jesus and James and Bell Hooks and John Coltrane and Howard Thurman all had is they had deep relationship with something beyond themselves. Um, and for me, that deep relationship is rooted in Jesus and it's rooted in the spirit. Um, but for each of them, it's described in this different and holy and beautiful and sacred way. And so I started reading in James and where I was picking up began at verse 12. Um, and it's this really short like passage that focused a little bit on, ten, on sin and belovedness and temptation. And so I really was worried um, because I was like, God, I always get nervous sometimes preaching about sin and teaching about sin. Um, I think that it's an important area of study, but there's so much theological harm and malpractice around how folks describe sin that when I read this short passage about evil and temptation um, and kind of where God is in it, I was like, God, what are you saying? And what I saw in literally a short amount of verses between verse 12 and 16 was that it began with love and it ended with love. And I was like, okay, God, if what you're showing me is that all of the in-between is sandwiched in love, there's a larger narrative here about what you're teaching us on how to love. And the beauty of James is that even though it's an epistle, it's really written in this way um, that is broken down like wisdom literature, right? You've got these little psalms, these little proverbs, like these little nuggets. And so for this Bible study, I said, well, let's just focus on a little nugget and see what spirit is saying. And sure enough, as I focused on what it meant to be beloved, and sin um, and navigating this world, I really felt called to Bell Hooks' work um, and how she defines love as a spiritual awakening and what it means to be loving. And then I started, I started thinking about Howard Thurman and Jesus and the Disinherited. And for him, like religion and Jesus is centered in a love ethic. Um, and then I started thinking about music and what it means practically. And John Coltrane's got this phenomenal beauty, a love supreme. And it even ends with this fourth section that he calls a psalm. Um, and I'm just like, okay, spirit, there's something here between all these pieces. And long story short, I began to see that if we understood sin as the 
absence of loving, what that does for how we live and navigate this world is transformative. And all of a sudden, all of those unhealthy ways that we have been taught to think about sin shifts because love is at the center. And I just really found hope in that and felt like there was a word to share. And so that's kind of what I started teaching. That's what a love ethic does is it it creates and transforms all of your interactions. I love that. It makes me think of that passage in Deuteronomy where Moses is kind of giving his last and greatest sermon. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. And then he says, you should keep these words on your heart and repeat them to your children, recite them in your mind in the morning and in the evening when you lie down and when you rise. And what you're saying here is that that's what a love ethic is. It's making this a part of your life all the time. Absolutely. And I think the beauty of James is that James focuses this epistle out of a relationship of knowing Christ. James is like, I'm I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus. And now I get to speak to this church that's dispersed in all these different places. And I think that's what it is. It's because I have relationship with something beyond myself, with spirit, with God, with our knowing. Um, because I have relationship with something that grounds me, I now get to guard that in my heart. It transforms my soul and I then get to share it. I just preached recently um, for post-election Sunday on the importance of litanies. And I made this claim that honestly, we can't see justice. Like our favorite, one of our favorite Christian, progressive Christian passages is let justice roll down like water and righteousness flow like an ever flowing stream. And the claim that I made was that you've got to have something that grounds you before you can even utter a prophetic call like that. You have to have a litany. And a litany is birthed out of our experience. It's birthed out of our knowing God. It's birthed out of what I hold close to my heart. And so in the same way, Moses shares this thing, right? This greatest of commandment, right? What is it for the people to hold on to? I think that's the same of our litany. What is it that we hold on to that teaches us that we're a part of something greater than ourselves, that teaches us how to survive and navigate? And ultimately, I would say that teaches us how to love. And if we can hold on to that, then our love becomes transformative. And I think that's why I love Bell Hook so much, because for her, love isn't just like something that you do. It's not just how to care. I mean, she really clearly narrates these differences in that like you can have love and it's different than being a loving person or moving in a loving way. And I think that's what I was trying to articulate is that to know God in this moment is to be grounded in a love that surpasses us and that truly shifts how we interact with the world. Um, And that then brings us hope and healing. That's so beautiful. I I feel like that's a message that so many people in our world need to hear. I think especially right now, you know, there's all these posts I've seen recently or, or people saying we just need unity and we just need to come together. And I feel like we can't actually do that without rooting in this ethic of love. Exactly. Because the work begins. We got to do the work. 
as individuals, we have to do the work. Um, we have to do the work within our close-knit relationship. And so unity isn't just this thing that, oh, we get one win and now all of a sudden we see unity. Like it's something that is a commitment that we do every day. That's that's the work. Um, and I think that's what makes this whole new love ethic, as I called it in my Bible study, so beautiful is because if I profess to be more like Jesus, and if Jesus is perfect by his love, then that means every day I have to try, right, and put forth the effort to be loving, Um And that is a continual work. We don't get a certificate and then get to hang it on the wall (laughs) and say like, oh, I've accomplished love today. Like, okay, but what about tomorrow? Um, And what about the next generation, right? That's the bit about ethics. Ethics really grabs our whole life and that which is to come. It's not just about the moment. And we as a world have got to see that if we want to commit to the healing that has to take place. Yes, absolutely. And I love that you talk about every moment. And I think it's important to remember for folks that it's a practice. And I had a yoga teacher who always used to say, practice is not perfect. Mm -hmm. She's my yoga teacher. And she would always say, there's a reason we call it a yoga practice, not a yoga perfect. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important for us too, to remember with this love ethic, like it is something that we practice. And I think Brene Brown talks about this, but like assuming the best in others Mm -hmm. and in others intentions. So like at the grocery store, when I see someone checking out, who's just being nasty to the checker and what do I assume about that person? Do I assume that they've had a really horrendous day or do I assume that they're just a jerk, you know, being generous in our assumptions and being loving in our assumptions, but also like, I, I think, and maybe you can talk about this when we talk about love, I think a lot of people see it as this like fluffy, soft, easy, you know, always forgiving, peaceful, flowy Mm -hmm. thing. But sometimes love is like, it's, it's harder, you know, it's it's calling people in. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So a few things. Um, The one thing that I loved about your yoga analogy that you brought is something that I love within my own spiritual practice of yoga is what it means to be grounded, right? So when I take mountain pose and I ground myself, that to me is the same purpose of my litany. That to me is the same thing that love is doing in my knowing is that it's recentering myself in something beyond me. that collects me and gets me ready to do the work because love is hard. A love ethic, um, a, a love that Jesus professes, it doesn't negate accountability. I think that's the piece that we miss. When love becomes this fluffy, always feel good thing, romanticized way of being, we miss that love actually is what holds us accountable with one another. Love is actually what strengthens us. Love is our iron sharpens iron. And so, yes, love does mean that we operate in a community of care, but love does not dismiss and always feel um, like this comfort pillow. Like at times, love actually um, is more firm in a way that's also beautiful 
and sacred, right? Love also allows me to give forth a holy no. That's like, no, I can't do that right now. I need to put up some boundaries because that is harmful, right? Love does not exude harm. Love just says, hey, here's the boundary. And this is the standard to which we truly need to interact with one another. And I think that if we seek to pacify love, we actually miss the radical nature of love, the inclusive and the love that is fluid. That to me is truly why I love using John Coltrane in my study, because here is a love that is fluid and moves in music and it's still supreme. So my love then becomes this contagious way of being that doesn't have to be fluffy. It just has to be authentically true. And when we let the love be true, then my truth brings out your truth, which brings out our neighbor's truth. And then we can help do the work together. We can refine the the rough places of one another together. We can push one another forward together. I think that's the beauty of what love does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to talk in this same um vein about sin. I think a lot of pastors, and you have mentioned this to me before, that we tend to stay away from the topic of sin. And I'm curious if you can talk about why do we kind of stay away from it and maybe fear it a little bit? What is that about? Absolutely. So in progressive Christian circles that I would say that I'm in, um, at times I think we run away or stay away from sin because of the spiritual malpractice and the harm that sin has done. Sin becomes a trigger word, right? Because we think of all of the ways that sin has been used to abuse and control and manipulate the other. Sin has been used to say that you're not worthy. Sin has been used to say that you need to suffer. Sin has been used to say that you're never going to be good enough, that God isn't happy with you. Sin has just really been manipulated. Um, so that folks can keep their power and control. And I think I personally stayed away from what it meant to teach um, healthy notions of sin or practices of sin, because I was worried that the minute that I said the word sin, someone would run away because they've been so harmed at saying that their body is sinful or who they love is sinful, right? And all these ways that are just absurd. Um, And I think that that are false. And so what this Bible study and what this James passage really challenged me to do was to say, okay, God, if here we're talking about evil and sin and you framed it in terms of belovedness, I have got to read the scripture through a lens that is freeing people and not hurting people. So God, I need you to give me an understanding of sin that works for us, that's tangible for us, that will actually help us do no harm in other people. And so using sin and redefining it as the absence of loving, I then begin to, I begin to understand how that is tempting and how it's, it's easy to be in a place and say, I don't want to be loving, right? I'm desire. I have this desire and I'm attracted to power 
So I don't have to love my neighbor because I want to stay superior. And when I begin to understand that that is the absence of love and that that is inherently evil, okay, now I can understand what it means to be more like God and what it means to not fall into deceit. Um, But I just think that we have years of undoing harmful theologies that attack people's personhood and say that they aren't worthy and loved. And when you're up against that, it makes teaching on sin seem scary. And I think that's what we're really up against. Absolutely. Can you talk about then if we're willing to to dig into sin and sin as this notion of the absence of love, how can that transform us? Right. So from the beginning of the pandemic in March, I was already worried about the aftermath. Mm. I was worried about the trauma. I was worried about what happens when now we can be closer to six, closer than six feet with one another. And now we're nervous to be in community or what happens um, when all that grief comes once again, flooding through because what we have been through right now is trauma. And I think that for me, in order to heal the trauma, it means that I got to get to the root of some of these wounds in the wounds of our world that are happening systemically are rooted in notions and places that there is no love because it's all about power. Who has power? White power, abusive power, violent power. Who has power, capitalistic power. And I think even um, the ways that we have navigated the world in the last eight months have been trying to figure out how we respond to power. And for me, the reason why digging in and doing the work around sin is so important now is because if I want to teach about healing and if I want to give hope and if I want to move towards equity and if I truly want to radiate um, this loving power and presence that God has put in me that I think that God has in each and every one of us, then we have got to do the hard work. And the hard work is undoing some of the harm and the malpractice and the places where evil has reigned. That's the hard work, but it's necessary. And that to me is what a love ethic causes us to do. A love ethic says that I'm going to move and be and be transformed by this loving power and loving agent, or I'm going to be a part of a spiritual awakening, as Bell Hooks would say. But that means that we've got to rethink our harmful practices and theologies and ways of being um, so that we can rebuild something beautiful again. I think that if we can truly get to the root of what bogs us down, then we can give folks their imaginations back and their creativity back. 
and their joy back. Um, And that's what I want to see now and on the other side of this pandemic and beyond for generations to come. I want to see some folks who know what it means to be transformed by their joy and by their love and by their hope and by their healing because they got their imagination back because we did the hard work of removing all the things that interfered with our love ethic so that we could be better people. Mm, I have goosebumps right now. (laughs) Yeah, that's the spirit, you know? That's what the spirit does. It just captivates us and it moves us forward because that's the work. That's the journey that we're on together. Absolutely. And I I love that word imagination because I hear it a lot in organizing circles that part of doing the work around undoing systemic injustice is imagining that there's a new way. And it's hard for a lot of folks because we're like, no, this this is the way we've always done it. We hear that in churches. We hear that in government, you know, all over the place. This is the way it's always done. But what if we imagined a new way? And the imagination piece is necessity. Right. So I think that's why I'm a lover of Jesus, because Jesus comes in and Jesus teaches us in these stories, like in these parables that have so many different meanings. But the beauty is that Jesus interacts with ordinary people and Jesus gives folks their hope back. Jesus gives folks the rest. Jesus restores folks his dignity again. And that imagination piece that organizers love, that I think the church needs to love, I think that's where we can begin to merge the two and do this new work together, is that really, we have to empower our imaginations again. And when you talk about folks who have been oppressed time and time again, who've been cast aside, For whatever reason, often they've been restricted from their imagination. And so to me, the work of Jesus comes in and says, let's ignite that fire again anew. Because if your creativity can run fluidly, right? If you can have your imagination back and if you bring something special to the table and our neighbors bring something special to the table and someone far off that we don't even know brings something special to the table, now imagine what this newness can be. And I think that's why the place like the Bible, like it can still speak to us year after year, right? Centuries after centuries, because there's something new that's always at work, but it takes having our imaginations back, which is then rooted in love. Cause I got to remind the people what it means to love yourself again so that you trust your imagination and that you want to explore it. Because if you've been told that your worth is less than and, and that who you are doesn't matter, why on earth would you trust the beauty of your imagination. So our job as soul healers is to say, hey, there's something beautiful in you that someone tried to take away for their own self gain. And now how can we help you see it again anew? Because that's right where the world begins to emerge into this place that we have yet to be. 
it makes me think of children mm. and how, you know, Jesus says, let the little children come to me for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and yes. that a little child shall lead them. You know, it's children have such this powerful imaginative ability. Yes. Someone hasn't stolen that from them yet. And if we can follow them, if we can imagine with them a new way to be, how incredible would that be? Yes, absolutely. So I used to be a youth pastor and all of all of my youth taught me new lessons. But there was one family who was homeschooled and they taught me the beauty of my imagination again. The way that their mother and and their father taught them to really think and navigate this beautiful world um, as holy beings was transformative for me because it meant that when we were in church school, that this young family of youth and children were teaching me what it meant to reimagine again, to reconsider God's handiwork again, to see with new eyes again. The children were leading the way. And all of a sudden, I then needed to up my game, my game as their teacher, because they deserved to see something more. Um, and they taught me that and how they drew and how they designed and how they crafted artwork out of recycled paper and how they looked at images anew and fresh again. This family taught me that because we were so rigid in our way of thinking. And I think children are a beautiful example, which is why Jesus is like, they'll, they'll teach us. Because children teach us what it means to be free and live in this wild and wonderful sacred life um, connected to something beyond themselves and yet so hopeful. And I, I think children are a beautiful example of that. Absolutely. I think at a certain point, adults get afraid of children's imagination and start to clip their wings. And if we weren't so afraid and stopped clipping their wings, I think they would teach us how to fly again. Absolutely. And I think we get scared because there gets to be a place in a child's imagination where I then feel like I'm not good enough. I can't keep up because what they see is beyond what I in my moment have the ability to see. And I think that often out of fear, we then teach them to hold back instead of empowering them to keep drawing, right? And keep moving. And inevitably, if actually I can teach them to fly with their dreams and with their creativity, then what they end up doing is re- right? Sparking my imagination. Um, and all of a sudden, I now know how to move as a new holy being that loves God, that sees God anew with fresh eyes each and every day. But I think we hold them back out of our own fear because we worry that we won't be able to have all the answers. 
But I don't think we need to have all the answers. <laughs> That's not my job. Yes. <laughs> my job is just to ask questions, right? And then wrestle with God through them. My job is not to know everything. My job is to be loving. Mm, absolutely. And all of this makes me think about Moses and the Hebrew people. And if it weren't for Moses's imagination, imagining that there was a new way for them to be yeah. drawing them out into bringing them out into the wilderness, they had to believe. And then they're out in the wilderness wandering around. They don't have food. They don't have water. They're hungry and cranky, understandably. <laughs> and they're like, no, we got to go back. We got to go back. Uh, Why did you take us out here? And Moses is like, you have to imagine a new way. You have to imagine that God is at work and calling us to something new. And I see that through line in all the people who have worked to end injustice. I think about, I want to say it was Austin Channing Brown who wrote about this saying, you know, it's all of those ancestors who, when they looked back, all they saw was their people enslaved. And when they looked forward, all they saw was their people enslaved, but they had this imagination that I believe was a gift from God, that there was a different way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love Austin Channing Brown's work. I think it is so grounding um, and foundational. And I love how she tells us to take care of ourselves because that too is a piece of the imagination. We cannot empower one's imagination if we don't know how to care for our own bodies in the work. Um, And I think that she brilliantly writes what it means to be uh, like what it means as a black body navigating a white world to be committed to this work and what it means to care for your body. And her work alone um, really transformed me. And the other piece of that is as you were talking about Moses, I was thinking about a brilliant sermon um, that I heard a couple weeks ago, actually about Moses and this idea that there are people whose job is to move forth with the imagination and to say, keep going, keep seeing, keep moving. And that actually it's a privilege to be able to sit where we are or stand where we are and have the imagination to see, even if we can't get there. And when I heard that, I just was so inspired by this sermon because I'm like, you're right. So often we we are all empowered by Moses and then we're like, well, Moses didn't get in. And the sermon is like, well, Moses' job is to lead the people and to see beyond himself, to see that which they cannot see, to help them keep moving on the journey. And I think that the beauty of our ancestors, the beauty of the works of those who have gone before us, is they had the ability to see and imagine and to keep us moving steady towards something beyond ourselves and this healing work and this work of love. And even if they didn't see it for themselves fully, they got a glimpse of it and their imaginations knew what was beyond. And that's the sort of people that I want to keep raising and empowering and leading with. I want to inspire some leaders who can see beyond themselves that whether we get there or not, 
our imaginations have helped us to see this healing land. And we're going to keep moving towards it. We're going to keep loving towards it, even if it feels like we're wandering. Because my job was to imagine again, and your job is to imagine again. And if all of us can do it together, then we can continue to survive for generations to come. Absolutely. Amen to that. As you're talking about the sermon you gave recently called By Any Means Necessary. Mm. And in that, you talked about when Jesus heals a woman who's bent over and how he imagined in a new way this possibility for her to not be bent over, this possibility for healing on the Sabbath, which the religious leaders watching were like, you can't do that. And he's like, let's imagine a new way. Yes. So part of the reason that sermon brought me joy um, is because I really felt like what Jesus taught us is that the Sabbath loses its power if we all don't have access to rest access to dignity, access to that which belongs to us. Um, And I think that the beauty here in in that sermon was that I felt that God was saying that we're going to heal by any means necessary, we'll reimagine, by any means necessary, we'll rest again, by any means necessary, because we know what's at stake. And that all of it, the personal is inherently collective. And so all of it loses its its power, loses the way that it can truly be transformative if we forget that individuals don't have access to it. And so here we are in this story on the Sabbath and this woman, her posture has stopped her from resting. Her posture has stopped her from encouraging her spirit. Her posture has signified, right, that she has been removed from the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, by any means necessary, I just want to encourage your spirit again. I want to remind you that you are worthy of rest again. I want to remind you that you too are worthy of having access to the Sabbath. And that's why the Sabbath loses its power if we forget that there are folks who who aren't resting. Um, And I think that's where that by any means necessary peace comes in, that we forget that love loses its power. If if we forget that people don't have access to love, And so many things in so many ways. And so that story alone is also a place where we see imagination again and imagination anew. Mm -hmm. You have touched so many times in this conversation about, you know, connecting to something beyond ourselves and connecting to community and, and moving beyond ourselves. I'm wondering, you know, if we were to grasp this new love ethic and truly start to live by it. What is your sense of how it would transform us? You know, take how would it take us beyond us as individuals and move us out? Well, I think first, it requires us to do some healing work for our own individual selves. So it requires me to look myself in the mirror and see myself in a new way. 
And so all of the places that are weary or the places where I have doubt or the places where I say that aren't enough, this new love ethic says, hi, I see that, I hold it, and there can be a new truth because actually you are more than enough. And yes, you're weary now, but you don't have to stay weary. And yes, you have doubt now, but you don't have to remain doubtful. Yes, I see where you are anxious, Mahogany, but you don't have to stay anxious. I think that's a part of it, is that the love ethic requires me to do that one-on-one work with myself. It then requires me to do some one-on-one work with God um, or with the divine or whatever I know to be true. Uh, For me, it's rooted in Jesus. So I get to do some one-on-one work with Jesus um, and see what are the parts of me that shine and feel so close to God. And once I start doing that work, I then am able to see it in other people. And I don't necessarily have to have relationship with those folks to see it. I can see it at the grocery store. I can see it at the Metro. I can see it on the Zoom. I can see it um, in one another's bodies. I can see it even if I'm just on a trail and I can begin to even see it in nature because I did the work to repair the love with myself, to repair the love between myself and the divine that then enables me to repair the love with myself and creation. And if each of us can commit to doing it each day, one day at a time, one moment at a time, one breath at a time, I do believe that the love becomes contagious and the joy becomes contagious and even that the healing work becomes contagious because now my love has modeled healing for someone who may not have known love before and now my grace has modeled healing for someone who may not have known grace before in the same way our compassion and gentleness model those things to someone who may not know it before. And slowly but surely, I do believe it becomes transformative. And all of a sudden, collectively, we start feeling something anew again. I love that so much. Can you tell us what is it that brings you hope in this moment? Hope in this moment for me comes in the little things that make me smile. Sunshine, a latte, sharing extra toilet paper with your neighbor who runs out of toilet paper. (laughs) (laughs) The little things. Hope for me is the act of paying it forward. The person who blesses you with lunch one day, and then one day you then can bless someone else. Hope is in the joy of smiling across the yard and seeing someone else outside playing. Hope is in the joy of babies. 
will roam freely right now, even though the world feels catastrophic. Babies are still smiling. Hope to me is in the little thing. I feel like in describing that, you also described that love ethic that you were talking about. Maybe then hope is to know love. And if I can know love in a little way, because I think that's the thing. Sometimes we get bogged down and we think that living a love ethic is too big. But if we just take it in bite-sized pieces, breath by breath, this is how I can be loving now, then yes. That then becomes the hope. This is how I can smile now. Um, it doesn't have to always be so large scale because it ends up radiating and being transformative regardless. Thank you so much. Are you ready for our rapid fire questions? All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> if you could untangle one piece of bad theology for everyone forever, what would it be? That they're not good enough. I want to untangle that. The theology that says you are never good enough. You're never worthy. You're never, never good enough. I want to undo that. I want to throw it away. Mm, me too. I'll join you in that. <laughs> yeah. I want to throw it away. I want to say that you are loved and whole and a whole being. Yes. That's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. All right. Number two, what do you love about Jesus? I love, I love Jesus. <laughs> like, let's just start there. I just love Jesus. Everybody ain't got to love Jesus, but I love Jesus. And uh, I love that Jesus was human. Jesus was a human being. That's what I love about Jesus. And that all that love, all that healing power, all that transformative work that happened from Jesus happened in a human, a human, a little baby boy, right? Who grew up. That's what I love about Jesus. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite verse or story in the Bible? So right now, my favorite story is probably on Jesus and Zacchaeus. I really love this idea that Jesus is like, hi, I want to come to your house. In fact, I need to stay at your house. Like, Come down from the tree. I see you. And I need to stay there. I think there's something really special about a Jesus who's like, I see you. And Kelsey, I want to stay at your house today. Like that to me, I love that story. But I'm like, okay, Jesus, no one else thinks I'm worthy. But yet you want to stay in my house. That's really special to me. I love that. Mahogany, if you could ask God anything... What would you ask God? I would ask God, why is it so hard? <laughs> it's so hard right now. Like, it's just hard for everybody. Everybody is going through. And even when we have moments of joy and feel like we make three steps forward, right? We then are constantly bogged down. And I just would want to know, why is it so hard? Mm-hmm. And me too. What is your go-to comfort food right now? Chips. So I love me a good salty kettle chip. <laughs> like it just brings my body soul. That and a latte. Like a good latte will just make my soul smile. That is comfort. 
Mm -hmm. Do you have a like flavor latte you like? Okay. So I'm less on the flavor, but I'm all, it's all about the milk. So lately I really been doing it. It's the afternoon, like a decaf oat milk latte blesses me. Like there's something about that oat milk texture that mixes with the decaf that I'm like, oh God, you are in this cup today and I'm going to enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Okay. What do you know for sure? I know that Jesus is real. That I know to be true. Like I know it in my heart that there is something beyond myself that makes me smile even when I don't feel like smiling. And I know that to be true for me. It's true for mahogany. Dang, I be everybody's truth. But that I know to be true. Mm. Okay, last question. What is filling your well? That is a good question. I think right now, all of the small moments of joy, the lattes, the books, the neighbors across the hall, um, the friends with new kids, all of the moments of joy that are seemingly happening in spite of are filling my cup. They're reminding me to slow down and to smile. Um, I have a friend of mine who sends me a picture of her baby girl every day, and that is filling my cup. Um, I think that it's the little things, the little joyous moments that the pandemic is requiring you to savor. That's filling my cup right now. I love that. I love that. Well, Mahogany, thank you so much. You filled my well today. You filled my cup today. I'm so grateful for you, for your wisdom and your grace. I know you touched my heart today and I know you will touch the hearts of everybody who's listening. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I always thank the spirit because I think that none of it's possible without the spirit. Mm. So thank you, spirit. Amen. My friend, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so grateful for you. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. The Lady Preacher podcast is part of a nonprofit called Dancing Pastor Ministries. And you can find us online at dancingpastor.org or join the community by finding us on Facebook at Dancing Pastor Ministries. If you would like to be a part of supporting this podcast, there are many ways you can do that without giving monetarily. You can share our posts on social media, send an episode to a friend, or just leave a review. If you would like to support us financially, you can do so at dancingpastor.org slash give. My friend, you are a gift. Thank you for being here and God bless.